Coming to you from the First Presbyterian Church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. The questions are unscreened, the answers unrehearsed, and as always, utterly free of any expertise. I've got several events coming up in case you'd like to see me on the road. I'll be at Northwest Nazarene University, uh, the Hawkins Road Festival in Sarasota, doing an Ask Science Mike Live in Chapel Hill, the IRIS 2017 Conference in Athens, Georgia, the Blue Conference in Fairfax, Virginia, and the Christ in Creation Conference with BioLogos in Houston, Texas in February and March. If you'd like to get more information about where you can see me, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events. But for now, we've got a show to do. So let's get it started. Why do you think when people go into psychosis or they have schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. they get hyper-religiosity or they have the devil's Jesus syndrome? Yeah. Uh, And your name? Donna. Thank you, Donna. I just want the internet to know who you are in case they want to find you. So, um, just kidding. So, yeah, what is with the association of hyper-religiosity and certain types of mental illness. Um, That's a fact that is often used by atheists to talk about the folly of religion, right? It's many atheists describe religious faith as a socially acceptable form of psychosis because if anyone else said they heard voices or talked to someone who no one else can see, we would commit them to a mental institution, But if they say that they're religious, then they're just normal, upstanding members of society. Now, to start, since that's so often an assumption in in conversation today, uh, mental health experts do not consider religious people mentally ill. That's a very bad reading of modern psychology. Because mental illness, one, has to create a significant deviation from a bell curve of behaviors that are normal in a society, and two, must in some way impair in your ability to live a productive life. And on both of those metrics, religion immediately sets itself aside from mental illness. But we do have times where some form of mental illness cause a state of hyper-religious activity or hyper-religious devotion. And there's several possible explanations for this phenomenon although science doesn't have it perfectly nailed down. One, the reason we believe in God, according to the University of Oxford, they did a multi-decadal, multi-continent study looking for where belief comes from. And they found that there's three factors that contribute to the almost universal belief in a theistic or all-powerful God societies. Number one, babies tend to believe not tend to, babies always believe their mothers are all-knowing. So if you do experiments with babies and small children and you place a ball underneath a container while mom's not in the room, when mom comes in the room, baby expects mom already knows where the ball is. 
And you could do variations of that experiment and find babies think mom is all-knowing. As they grow, sometimes between three, five, even as late as seven, children start to realize mom's knowledge has limits. This is usually when they learn they can lie to mom, right? And mom won't automatically know. Um, But that belief in something all-knowing often persists and gets mapped onto an unseen entity. That's one. Number two, humans have a tendency to accept purpose-based explanations for observed phenomena. That was a mouthful. Basically, if you say a reason why something happened, people are more likely to believe it. For example, polar bears are white because they need to blend in with the snow. Well, the theory of evolution via natural selection would say, actually, polar bears benefited from a mutation that made them white. It just happened to work, and that's why it stuck. It wasn't that they were designed to blend in with the snow. Do you see the difference? The thing is, even trained scientists, if they aren't thinking about it, including evolutionary biologists, are more likely to accept purpose-based explanations for any given phenomenon. Why? We need our world to make sense and fit a story. The third ingredient, uh, I can't remember. Let's see, there's the all-knowing mom, there's purpose-based explanations. This isn't the brain thing, this is just me forgetting. Um, Oh, I can't remember the third one, there's three things. You can look, you can Google it for Oxford. I might remember the next answer, we'll edit it or not. Anyways, there's three things that come together to create Oh, yeah, great. All I had to do was decide to move on. The other thing is across all cultures, humans have a hard time believing their consciousness ends. So even if you look like in secular societies in Europe, more than half of the people believe in eternal consciousness, eternal life of some form. So Oxford said if you take those three things together and you combine them uh, with religious symbols you formalize three impulses that help a species cope with the fact that it can be aware of its own death, right? And because we get such tremendous psychological relief from those three beliefs as expressed through religious phenomena, some forms of faith can take that relief and express it through uh, an ecstatic feeling. Uh, your Pentecostal and charismatic traditions especially know how to take this, this incredible relief you get from God and turn it into a very powerful experience. Well, what do you have in someone suffering from schizophrenia? You have incredible angst, first of all, fear that's amplified by uh, certain overactive areas of the brain and, and excessive points of conversation in the limbic system, as well as deficient connections sometimes uh, towards the front of the brain and towards the outer neocortex. And that gets funneled through sometimes ecstatic experiences that provide a relief from the symptom. Well, that's an amplified version of the same healthy neurological mechanism that lets you be a person of faith. So why is one mental illness and why is one not? Because 
those disorders interfere with your ability to live. And you might think, well, gosh, that's a, that's a condemnation on my faith that there's any neurological similarity between mental illness and how I believe in God. But the same circuits in your brain that encourage some people to just eat instead of starving encourage other people to overeat. The same circuits in some people's brain that encourage humans to continue happening encourage other people to have sexual addiction. So it's not, it's not the fact that the neurological circuits exist that uh, stand in condemnation of any belief. It's a matter of how they get expressed in a healthy way or not. The fact is, as we understand the brain today, everything we know and love and think and feel comes from the brain. Now, one last interesting thing on schizophrenia. The voices heard by schizophrenics in South American societies are all friendly. People with schizophrenia in South America don't suffer. They just hear friends. But Americans have the same disorder, and what do they hear? Accusations, shame, insults. So, yes, on the one hand, this is a brain disorder, but on another thing, the role our society plays in mental illness affects the way that it's lived in people's lives. And so anthropologists are trying to identify what it is about our culture that makes mental illness more destructive than it is in other societies. And as we learn that, maybe we'll learn to see God better, whether we're schizophrenic or neurotypical. I'm Terry. Hey, Terry. And uh, you talk in, in uh, Finding God in the Waves about prayer. Yes. And about prayer, uh, uh, praying to God for some kind of particular outcome versus prayer as a simply a way to connect with God mm-hmm. while one is going through certain circumstances. And I'd like you to expand on that a little bit. Sure. Thank you. Finding on the way is available in bookstores everywhere. Um, <laughs> so the way I learned to pray growing up was you talk to God, and there's multiple reasons you talk to God, uh, which we called acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I can't believe my brain gave me that so fast and had to struggle with the third neurocognitive bias for God. And that last one was supplication. So the idea was like you had to, you had to put the change in the vending machine first, right? So I've got to show God how much I adore him. I've got to get rid of all my unconfessed sin by confessing it. I've got to express thanksgiving to God. And then I'm going to ask God to do things. And that's something we call intercessory prayer. We ask God to intercede on the behalf of others. That's always how I saw things. And to great effect, like I would talk to God about everything. I would talk to God about promotions at work, and then I would get them. I remember my grandmother had cancer in her lungs, and they told her she was going to die, and they couldn't do any more chemotherapy. 
And we all, my whole family got together and held hands around her and prayed for a miracle. And then she went and got an x-ray and she had no tumors in her lungs. I'm like, she's, she's cured. And like Baptist Mike was like, yes, God is in the miracle business. And then like uh, a year and a half, two years later, the cancer came back. On that time, it killed her. And we prayed for a miracle again, but we just said, well, you know, uh, God already gave us a miracle. We got more time with Mima. We got to say goodbye. We're grateful. And that's great for me. Um, but what about people who pray for really necessary things and they, they get no answer? They get a negative answer. And that, that lifts a problem that theologians call theodicy, the problem of evil. Like, why do bad things happen in the world? This is kind of a, a subset of that question. Why does God answer some prayers and not others? Why is there bad in the world? And this destroys some people's faith. Uh, now that I do what I do with the Science Mike thing, my email box is full of people saying, I asked God for a really compelling, beautiful thing, and what happened was incredibly awful thing. And so for a while, uh, my solution was to be an atheist and not pray at all. And when I came back to faith, I wanted to pray again, but it felt strange to ask God for things. So I discovered other types of Christian prayer, which as a Baptist, I didn't know that was a thing. I thought really all you could do was acts, intercessory prayer. And I discovered there was like contemplative prayer, there was centering prayer, uh, there's Lixio Divina, there's all these forms of prayer whose focus was not compelling God to action, but compelling us to be in God's presence. And I found that for people who made it through some religious trial or difficulty involving prayer, some of them learn to take a redemptive perspective on where they felt God let them down, and they discovered a deeper or more meaningful prayer life that was more contemplative. And these people tended to be very secure in God's providence to the point they don't really ask for anything and, and kind of become content in all things. Um, and so most of my prayer time to date is contemplative, but not always. Because sometimes awful things happen and sitting in content silence just doesn't seem to cut the mustard, Right? My old evangelical comes out, and I start to passionately speak to God, beg from God. And the atheists have this thing called the milk jug challenge. Have you heard about this? It's amazing. So what Christians do to explain intercessory prayer is they say you ask God things, and God can answer three ways. God can say yes. God can say no. And God can say, wait. And that gave me a lot of peace for years until Richard Dawkins explained to me in his book that that's every possible outcome for every possible question. 
right? You want a promotion at work? Yes, no, wait. There's no other option. Uh, so there's a challenge in the book called the Milk Jug Challenge where Richard Dawkins says, pray to a milk jug for two weeks instead of God and imagine it answers yes or no or wait. So I actually did that. I, I prayed to, uh, uh, before it expired, a jug of milk in our fridge. <laughs> Time-limited trial here. And my milk jug gave me a promotion at work. So that was like a big moment for me. Uh, that was kind of like the last pillar that was holding me into Christianity. And so obviously if I pray intercessory prayers now, I've solved that dilemma. No, I really haven't at all. Now when I pray and I ask, so my dad had a stroke and they told us he was going to die. And so I got in a car with my mom, who's now my dad's ex-wife, and drove four hours to Orlando. And as we drove, we prayed the whole time. And it's hard to explain. But I was admitting my powerlessness more than I was demanding God does something. Does that make sense? Like I was, I didn't know what else to do but ask for a miracle. First of all, I don't think there's anything wrong with believing in intercessory prayer. I think that's a necessary building block to have faith, especially when faith is newer to you. But I think if you live long enough, you live to see all the boxes get knocked over, and that raises questions, and, and then that faces you with your own yes-no wait. Like, am I going to continue to be a person who believes that God is for humanity, that God loves the world, or not? And I think today most people say, no, I'm out, <laughs> statistically. But I'm encouraged by a church that seems increasingly contemplative. I'm encouraged by a church that seems less certain about outcomes and more certain about posture and about grace. And frankly, the neurology, the neuroscience behind contemplative prayer is incredibly compelling compared to intercessory prayer. In terms of transforming you as an individual, transforming the way that your brain operates, contemplative prayer is second to none, and intercessory prayer is basically free therapy, like according to the research. You know, people who talk to God about their problems, they do get a therapeutic benefit, but they aren't radically transformed into people of love. Uh, my name is Greg, hey, Greg, so I apologize in advance if there's any confusion with the edit. <laughs> um, ever since I heard you first mention it on one of the podcasts, uh, I've been fascinated with the concept of split brain theory. Mm-hmm. And partly I just want you to elaborate on that and talk about that more, but if for specifics, uh, does the science of that theory uh, support two separate consciousnesses? Um, or is it... Because I know that the idea of a consciousness 
you know, the brain is working in different ways. I've heard you talk about that before. Mm-hmm. And also, how does that theory, accepting that it is true, knowing that it, you know, it's just a theory, how does that impact us sociologically and also with our faith? Yeah, great question. Okay, so we're real early in brain science, right? Real, real early. As, as scientific disciplines go, this one's hot off the presses. Um, and I, I tell people often that brain science is fascinating, but it's kind of like studying astronomy like during the age of Galileo. Our telescopes are small and fuzzy, and therefore a lot of the assumptions we're making are going to be proven radically incorrect 50 years from now. But we're still working with the best of what we've got. Uh, split brain syndrome is more observational than brain imaging based. And, and here's what happens. So early, even earlier in the age of modern brain science, they're trying to figure out what's going on with epilepsy because some people have epileptic seizures that are life-threatening. And they figured out uh, through like EEGs, the old school stuff, that you effectively had a resonance cascade across both hemispheres of the brain. Feedback. Just like holding a microphone up to a speaker goes, an epileptic seizure was the two halves of the brain feeding back to each other across a structure called the corpus callosum. The corpus callosum is a thick channel of nerves that connects the two hemispheres of the brain together. So in desperation to try to treat this syndrome, they said, what if we just sever the corpus callosum in someone who's probably going to die anyway and see what happens? So they did. As brain surgery goes, this is a really simple procedure. The brain's already basically in two halves anyway, so you just like complete the job. And they did that with the first patient. They severed the corpus callosum. And the patient wakes up. No one has any idea what's going to happen. It's totally normal. Total normal recovery. Is able to go back to work and doesn't have seizures anymore. So they do this surgery more and more to the same effect. And everyone's normal. Everyone's fine. To the point that neuroscientists start to wonder, like, why do we have a corpus callosum if it doesn't do anything? And should we, in, in children who are diagnosed with epilepsy, just preemptively sever their corpus callosum as soon as we find out. Luckily, scientists are cautious, and they wait for more data. Because one of the first patients came home from work one day and went to hug his wife, and his left hand formed a fist and punched her across the face. And she was, like, shocked. And I'm like, why did you do that? He had no idea. He didn't consciously do that. So then a woman who'd had the surgery, oh, this gets way freakier, just buckle up. A woman had the surgery, she goes in her closet, she gets, picks out a dress with her, her uh, left hand, takes off the hanger, and her right hand shoots across her body, grabs a different dress, and then pins her hand to the wall until she drops the other dress, and then it just returns to her control. Another woman... Every time she would go to get dressed and button, her right hand would, or left hand would unbutton whatever she was buttoning. Left hand, button, unbutton, button, unbutton. Can you imagine? She'd go to leave her room, right hand opened the door, left hand would shut the door. 
Open the door, shut the door. Open the door, shut the door. Open the door, shut the door. Can't leave a room. Uh, another man <laughs> came in, said he couldn't sleep. They said, why? He's going to sleep one day. And his left hand closed around his throat and squeezed as he drifted off to sleep. Can you imagine? This is called alien hand syndrome, and it only happens with split brain patients, people who've had their corpus callosum severed. Remember, you've got two halves of your brain. So your consciousness, we understand, mainly happens in your prefrontal cortex, except you have two halves of the brain, and for most people, the dominant hemisphere is the left. So your left prefrontal cortex is mostly your consciousness. You still have a right prefrontal cortex. What's it doing over there? Your left brain has your temporal lobe, so it can speak. Your right brain does not have a temporal lobe and is mute. So these scientists started to theorize, is it possible every person carries around a fully conscious but mute slave in their brain that has to do the bidding of the left hemisphere master. And we cut the corpus callosum for the first time ever. The right prefrontal cortex can assert its will without being checked by the left. It, you didn't know what you were coming for tonight, did you? So, <laughs> so they devised an experiment to test this. And they realized you could train a right brain to control Scrabble tiles to answer questions. So then they realized the way your vision system works, each half of your brain gets half your vision in each eye. So they'd have people, no, they'd have people stare at a dot in the center of a screen, and then by placing questions on different parts of the screen while someone's wearing polarized glasses, they can ask a question that only reaches one hemisphere or the other. Are you with me? So, I took a young student and they asked him, what do you want to do when you get out of school? And he said, I want to be a draftsman. That's super sensible. That's a super left brain answer. Then they asked his right brain. Now, to be clear, I'm making a convenient story. In the actual experiment, they don't ask one hemisphere, then the other hemisphere. They ask the questions in random order so you can't game the system. So when they asked his right brain later, what do you want to do when you get out of school? He said, with the Scrabble tiles in the left hand. Now, remember, I didn't mention the brain's wired backward. Your right brain controls your left hand and vice versa. So the left hand answers the right brain by spelling out automobile racer. Draftsman? And uh, those are different occupations. I don't know if you caught that. Now, if you've ever wondered like why college students can't declare a major, <laughs> alien hand syndrome and split brain patients helps understand. So they ask, an, they ask a kid later, I love this, they asked his right brain the question, girlfriend question mark. And his left hand spells out the name of one of the research assistants in the lab. And the kid just turns red, beat red, because he doesn't even know what they asked him. He just knows how he feels about that name. And he knows there's been a disclosure here I didn't authorize. So they more recently, 
they were doing this because we're running out of split brain patients because we don't do this surgery anymore. But more recently, they were doing a question like this, and they asked someone, you know, do you believe in God? And the left brain said no, and the right brain said yes. So, like, same brain, same skull, two answers. And I often joke, like, does that mean half of his soul goes to heaven and the other to hell? Like, does Jesus live in the left side of his heart only? Like, what? this has theological implications. Um, but it has more implications for our consciousness. We experience life as a single observer making conscious decisions. But split brain patients and modern neuroscience tell us that we're actually a lot of systems building their own models of reality and lobbying for for what they care about. I mean, you have more lobbyists in your skull than Washington has affecting Congress, right? You've got the pizza lobby that thinks pizza is the next best meal, not kale chips, right? Like pizza is definitely the way we should go. You've got a much weaker lobby that says we should probably save for retirement. You've got you know all these different functions in your brain, and scientists today kind of understand consciousness as anything that can build a model of the world and then act in the world and change the world and update its model. So by that theory, like a thermostat is conscious because it knows the temperature, and if it gets too cold, it can turn on the air conditioning excuse me, turn on the heat, and then when it warms up enough, turn the heat back off. It's responding to reality. So by that level, what human beings are just lots and lots of thermostats that collect different data points and come together to make this map. But split-brain patients tell us your consciousness can absolutely be divided and still function. And that it's not really accurate to think of yourself as a you, a singular you, but you're really a plural you, a we. Yeah, except it's not, it's not, I don't know if it's a we because all the systems of your brain still identify as you, you know? Like even your gut bacteria are you, you, you have you know, maybe three, five, even 10 to one ratio bacterium to human cells in your body, but try to live without those bugs. You can't digest most foods. You can't process a lot of wastes, right? So even though those bugs are different than you, but here's the other thing. Those bugs talk to neurons in your gut. You've got more neurons in your gut than some primitive animals have in their brains, And that relationship between bacteria and neurons in your GI tract affects your mood. It affects your outlook. We found that in some experiments that adjusting people's gut biomes can not only make them feel happier or more depressed, but change whether they save for retirement or not. Isn't that amazing? So instead of thinking of ourselves as conscious agents, I'm much more fascinated by a God who creates an ecosystem in his image. I mean, wow. Really great question. Thank you. 
Um, hi, my name's Peyton. Hey, Peyton. Um, and I have a question about um, bias versus facts. Um, okay. Just, just how does your brain process um, it, or interpret, um, I guess, facts and opinions or biases? Um, how does that come into play um, in your brain? And also, um, in conversations um, about faith, um, how does that... Um, how do we get away from bias and move towards fact, even though we are all like socialized and um, we all come with our own experiences and traumas and all of that? Um, how do we move away from bias and more towards fact? Okay. That's uh, We just recorded a two-hour podcast for the liturgists on that. So I'm going to try to not give you a two-hour answer. I'll give you a teaser. Uh, okay. Biases. Let's start there. What's a bias? The bias is something that influences how we make decisions or judgments. Um, and there are conscious biases that we're aware of and unconscious or implicit biases we are not aware of. So let's see. One of the most nefarious and common biases in cognitive science is confirmation bias. Have you heard of confirmation bias? Confirmation bias means... You tend to accept information that supports what you already believe and reject information that goes against what you already believe. Well, if that was the only bias we had, it's already really difficult to convince humans to accept new information. But that's one of like 160 confirmed cognitive biases. There's another one. This, one's, this is a terrible bias. It's called the availability cascade effect. The more often you hear something, the more likely you are to believe it. It doesn't matter whether people support the claim or not. Literally, all they have to do is repeat it, and you're more likely to believe it. And when you connect that to computers who have algorithms who are economically incentivized to show you things you like, guess what they do? They tell you something over and over that you already believe, and so we have this never-happened-in-history massive feedback loop between computers and human brains that let human brains hear what they already believe over and over. 2016. This is not a right thing. This is not a left thing. This is a human thing. There's the authority bias. The authority bias means we tend to believe what authority figures tell us unless they go against confirmation bias, at which point we have something called the backfire effect where we reject information we've learned recently because it makes us doubt how we see the world. One thing that is becoming increasingly clear in science is human brains are not interested in or designed for discovering truth. We are almost pathologically disinterested in truth. What do human brains want? A model of the world that helps them find food, shelter, safety, and sex. That's the goal. And since we're a social mammal, a huge part of that process is believing what those around us believe. So frustrating. Because all of you are so biased, and I'm objective. 
That's another bias, by the way. We tend to believe other people are affected by bias, and we are not. So what in the world, how can we create an operating society with a bunch of primates that just want to fit in? How do we, we didn't just enter a post-fact world that used to be normal. Post-fact, the pre-fact world was, has been the norm for most of human history. What changed? The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was the end of a pre-fact society because the Enlightenment created new systems, new epistemologies. Epistemologies are the study of how uh, we believe things, how we uh, value things, how we build trust. It's, it's the study of knowledge itself. And the Enlightenment provided epistemologies that basically said, show me the money. I don't care what the guy in charge says. I don't care what the sacred book says. I don't care what popular opinion is. Give me data or give me death. And the Enlightenment has done some amazing things. I don't know if you like smartphones. Smartphones are a very Enlightenment device. You build them with physics and engineering. Space programs, really Enlightenment systems. But the Enlightenment also has a problem. It focuses on one type of mental model building. What happens in your left prefrontal cortex, your left brain, which is very reductive, which is very systematic. The right brain is very holistic. Um, and that kind of thinking leads to poetry, in music, the humanities, and until the Reformation, religion. Now, the Reformation in the church was the invasion of Enlightenment thinking into theology. That's what happened there. And now we created systems and reductive understandings of our holy texts and God. And the problem is, for many people, as powerful as Enlightenment thinking, it is not a satisfying way to live. It also requires an incredible investment in training and education because it doesn't come naturally to our brains. And I think what you're seeing right now in a post-truth world is the intersection of bias as well as people who have gotten everything you can get out of the Enlightenment world and still feel kind of hollow and empty and like they miss something. This is, this is the man who stands in the driveway with a good 401k and that red sports car he's always wanted and says, is this it? Is this all there is? One of these things, in my opinion, is healthy, moving beyond in exclusive enlightenment thinking and how we approach the world and others is beneficial. But deciding we can't agree on what facts are anymore, <laughs> that's a problem. I'll just lay it on the table. I think that's a potential civilization ender, right? This could completely destroy our capacity to govern and build societies and really build anything, by the way. Uh, the fundamental of engineering is agreeing on units of measurement and fact, right? You can't, you can't land 
a robot on Mars without everyone agreeing on what units of measurement, how they're measured in gravity and orbital mechanics and all these systems. So I think... We have to inspire people to the benefit of Enlightenment-style thinking and epistemology without making an idol out of it. So talk about what, in what ways this type of thinking is useful. Now here's the problem. For some uh, popular beliefs or policy positions in America specifically, Enlightenment thinking is a real bummer. Enlightenment thinking will, le- will very easily demonstrate, for example, that the global climate is changing. Right? There's not really any debate about the fact that global climate is changing. You can have a reasonable debate about how much human activity is affecting that climate change. That's a discussion we can and should have. You can definitely have an informed conversation about what our response should be, what policies are most effective. I would love it if that was what was happening on Capitol Hill, if it was Republicans and Democrats and independents all talking about what approach would be best, how do we best balance a response with the economy with the assumption that we all agree the thermometers are doing something. Do you see what I mean? So, but we can't, I think the problem came because for too long, Enlightenment thinking became the new dogma and was used to dismiss valuable, deeply held ideas that should, shouldn't be measured empirically in the first place. Right? We shouldn't be making an empirical value measurement on if God exists or not. You know, we shouldn't be making an empirical Uh, value judgment on people's personal belief systems and philosophies. I mean, if you leave it to the nerds, they want to tell you what colors are attractive or not based on enough points of data from web pages, right? I'm sorry, even if you like that color, the data doesn't support that liking that color is okay. You see what I mean? That's taking it too far. It's too far. And I think we've we've got to learn to balance that. And this is somewhere, honestly, I think the church can take the lead. We, I think the church should be the masters of the dance, the beauty of seeing the world holistically through the eyes of God while also embracing what science and enlightenment thinking can do for humanity. And if we learn to do that in the church and we learn to have better conversations, I would love if the whole culture looked at different denominations and say, wow, they are really good at having disagreements. Um, so I, I, that's one of the reasons I'm so into the church thing to begin with, is there was a time when the church led culture, and then it started to lag culture. I would like to be a culture-leading entity again, uh, because we are people whose lives are so defined by a right-brained grace and a left-brained understanding of the miracle of creation. Hi, I'm Juliana. I um, have a friend that has a kindergartner at a Christian school, and he recently came home and was terrified because he had learned about the Passover at school. 
they watched a video where Mist went into the house and then the firstborn oh. was killed. And he's a firstborn child and couldn't go to sleep a couple of nights ago. And I want to know if that was your child, what you would say to him. And I also want to know, just in general, what you say to young children when they first are introduced to violence in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Wow. Great question. Thank you. I have noticed over and over that when I speak in churches all the time, like every week, and a lot of times when I'm speaking not at a church, this is a green room, like if you're speaking at a club or a venue, um, and churches don't usually have green rooms because they're not structured for that kind of experience. So usually my green room is like a children's Sunday school room, and I've noticed they so often have Noah's Ark on the wall because it's like you teach kids about animals and it's very beautiful and there's rain and the sun's coming out but i've never seen thousands of bloated corpses in the water in the sunday school room even though that's a hundred percent in that story so it's interesting how we take like really intense discussions about the nature and character of god and the relationship of God to humanity, and turn them into fairy tales when they are not fairy tales. The Tower of Babel is not a fairy tale. The Noah's Ark is not a fairy tale. I mean, you can probably do the Garden of Eden in a kid-friendly way to talk about like how sometimes we see, I mean, I think we all know what the fruit looks like, and we've all heard the serpent's whisper, I think we hear that pretty young, but the <laughs> the Passover, wow! How how old? Kindergarten. I'm going to go ahead and say that's neurologically developmentally inappropriate. What's the lesson the brain is ready to receive about God at that age? God loves you. Who is God? Well, who do you think God is? In Genesis, he walked and talked with Adam and Eve. Now, who, who, who here thinks like God like has a body, walks around, it's like, you know, how's it going? That's not how we view God as we get older, but that's actually a very neurologically appropriate place to start with children because children need things to have faces to understand it. Your toddler doesn't get democracy. You cannot explain democracy to a toddler, but you can explain presidents, and judges, and congressmen, right? You can actually explain voting booths to a toddler that'll understand that. We, we get to pick this person. But if you just start with the abstraction, well, it's, it's a system of rule by the people. Your toddler's like, what are you talking about? That's happened. My kids have heard Bible study stories in a context that was developmentally inappropriate. So I usually start by affirming God loves them. Uh, and then I start explaining how like the Bible is this library of books and it's full of different stories and perspectives and opinions and some of the stuff in the Bible is kind of scary and kind of dark because life is. And so there's places in the Bible that we shouldn't avoid but that are maybe too grown up for you just in the same way there's some TV shows in some movies, you're not ready to watch either. So I'm sorry that someone shared with you something you weren't ready for. And however you want to talk about it, I'd like to answer any questions you have. 
But I want to tell you that that story is part of a larger theme and a larger movement in the Bible. And that the whole thing the Bible is telling us according to Jesus is that God is love and that the purpose of our lives is to love God. And just kind of take the stakes back down and just basically, you know, they got to watch the Bible's version of Showtime at 11 p.m. And they saw a monster on TV and now they have nightmares and kids get through it. It's the repeated exposure that creates trauma as well as our reaction to the event that determines how traumatic it is. Um, And so I would just kind of, you know, answer questions, be calm. And then maybe evaluate who's teaching Sunday school and if they stay involved in that. You know, I, a couple of years ago, this was after I was doing the science mic thing, my wife was teaching VBS at church, and she asked me to handle one night. And I was like, why? And she's like, well, read the curriculum. We go to like a Methodist church. They're not like a real turn and burn crowd, right? Like open minds, open hearts, open doors. Everything's okay. God is love. Um, and the curriculum said that for like, this was like three and four and five and six-year-old kids, we were supposed to get a cross, a wooden cross, and nails now the kids write their names on a piece of paper and nail it to the cross so they would know that Jesus was nailed to the cross by their sin. And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that either. So uh, I took a podcaster's author's privilege and called my pastor and said, hey, I'm going to just write new curriculum today. Is that cool? And Betsy was like, yeah, sure. And so I got a cross and tape, there's no nails, and I got paper that was red and pink, and I caught hearts out of it, and I had the kids write their name on a heart, and I told them a story about how Jesus came to love the world, and he loved the world so much that it scared some people, and they ended up putting him on a cross. But the reason Jesus was on that cross is because he loved so much. And so then as I came forward, I would have them tape their name on the cross, and I would say, God loves you, and say their name. Right? So none of those kids like left crying that night. We got a great picture of like a cross covered in hearts and the kids. And so I didn't shy away from the reality of the story, but I wasn't like, hey, you're terrible, and Jesus died because of something you did, Timmy. Like, that's terrible. Um, and I think that's the, that's the tension uh, for people who teach children is that's the hardest work in the church. Setting people up for a lifetime with God with some grounding in theology without screwing them up. Give me the adults any day, right? Any day. Uh, but we tend to take people who are just like good with kids. They're like, okay, go. Just do it. And how, I mean, how much time do we, as churches, do we spend equipping people who teach children? Not a lot. Not a lot. Well, we bought you some books. You know, have fun. 
so yeah, I would just kind of evaluate that. And I uh, probably not the most fun parent to teach my kids in Sunday school. Now, now because my kids are older, I'm like, well, you can handle it. Like, just just ask good questions. <laughs> Actually, probably I'm a real unpopular parent, but um, yeah, that's that's terrible. That's that's ter- like. Don't make kids think church is an R-rated movie and they're going to go home scared. Let's let's everybody listening right now. Let's just make an agreement. Let's not do that anymore. The message of the church is one of love, especially for the little children. Hi, I'm Luke. Hey, Luke. Hey. Um, throughout history, it seems like the church has been particularly interested in humans being the center of everything you know even in the middle ages as you had astronomers finding you know figuring out the earth was round and that we actually go around the sun not the other way around that was tough for the uh, religious people and as we see how big the cosmos is and just the math behind it all um, how likely it is that there is intelligent life somewhere out there whether or not we were to ever encounter it or not who knows but how would the church deal with contacts Hmm. with with intelligent life and why do you think it's so hard for leadership to admit that that might even be a possibility when science tells us that it is great question I think the church is getting more and more open to aliens in all denominations because I hear this so much. And I think if we make first contact with an intelligent alien civilization, the church will freak out and be in a state of total calamity along with the rest of humanity. (laughs) It will not just threaten our most deep-held ideas about God it depends on how we contact them. Um, but it's, it's, it's relatively unlikely if we encounter a civilization, it's going to be at our level of sophistication. Uh, most experts tell us it's more likely we find a microbe somewhere. Ooh, look, a weird microbe. And that would cause one set of upheaval. I think the microbe scenario is mostly good. We're not alone in the universe. And depending on how close that microbe is to the earth, uh, it teaches us a lot of immediately about how life emerged on the earth, the very first one we find. Uh, if it uses DNA, we understand that you know, we probably were seeded from the same place somehow. If it doesn't use DNA, uh, it will tell us a lot about how its genesis happened on its planet and therefore how ours happened on this one. Uh, and the only group I think that will really pout about it would be young earth creationist biblical literalists because their their argument will be more cratered than it's ever been. But for other people, people of faith who are comfortable with a scientific depiction of creation as the mechanics of what is described in the Bible, that won't be a crisis. Um, if we encounter radically more advanced aliens i i just think it's a bad day it's just a really bad day think about on earth 
when human culture, human culture, same species of different levels of technological sophistication encounter each other, right? It's the same level of technological sophistication. It's like some fighting and then a treaty. If it's we have gunpowder and you don't, genocide. Just unchecked genocide repeatedly with different cultures across the face of the earth. When it was, you know, we have iron weapons and throwable weapons and you have clubs, genocide, right? One species, slight different levels of technology. So if we're like, check it out, we've got rocket ships, and they have faster than light travel, it would be, it won't be like, you know, the, the Europeans meeting the Native Americans. It will be like humans discovering a new species of lizard. Like, we'll immediately be demoted in a way we have never been before. We'll have no ability to dictate terms over the engagement or the relationship. Any species that can travel faster than life can harness enough energy to vaporize our planet in seconds. We'd have no capacity to defend ourselves. Um, This is why some really smart people say the smart money is not trying to contact extraterrestrials. And the reason we don't hear extraterrestrials is everyone got advanced enough to realize we should be really quiet because we ever meet each other, one slight accidental breach and contact destroys one or both civilizations. Um, that's big. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, just think about the Amer- like every American, we sort of have this assumption of might. Like we can win. If it comes down to it, just watch out, China. Just watch out. You know, it might cost us, but we'll win. We would not win that encounter. It would not be a seven days war. It would be a seven second war. Um, and I think the amount of existential grief that would cause our species. I was joking the other day, like, you know, maybe the solution to our problems is um, to contact an alien civilization and they convert the earth into a zoo. And we don't have governments and we don't have jobs. They just give us iPhones with Netflix on it. And we sit there and watch our Netflix. And, you know, they float down and look at us. And then if like one human chases another human, they tase it and we fall down. (laughs) And we're just zoo animals. Um, And that's like... That's as likely as anything else from us encountering an ET. Uh, so does that have theological implications? I think so. I think so. Um, you know, the, the, other, the other possibility is aliens are so alien, we don't recognize each other as life. That's also a complete, completely plausible idea. There's, there's the idea even that here in this solar system, you could create life on Titan. Titan is the other planet in our solar system that has running uh, liquids on its surface. It's just on Titan, the running liquid is methane. Because <laughs> Titan's so cold, or methane flows like water does here. And on Titan, ice and liquid water play the role lava plays on Earth. So liquid water will destroy and burn up anything on Titan. 
And so one uh, biologist realized you could have single-celled organisms on Titan based on a hydrocarbon uh, metabolism, but a single-celled organism on Titan would be maybe three feet by a foot and a half. This giant membrane floating on the surface of a methane lake. So that'd be like their first stage of evolution. So what if that got more complex? Its metabolism, biochemistry, would be so slow, even if it was intelligent, we couldn't communicate. We just, we'd be incomprehensible, and its slowness would be incomprehensible to us. And that's a local area code. That's in this solar system. This is a fascinating question. Fascinating question. Totally unanswerable, but a lot of fun. Abby, um, my question is, so my mother's reading of the scriptures and thus her image of God is through a traditionally conservative and literal lens, and so she doesn't affirm gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so her relationship with her parents and her brother is strained because her brother is gay, and he feels unloved and rejected by her. And she feels she has to decide between having a relationship with her brother or defending her faith, with her, which her parents think is wrong because they can't reconcile a God who would reject their son. Mm-hmm. Um, needless to say, this has caught us a rift in our family, and so I've tried to talk to her about it, but it's a sensitive subject. Do you have any advice on how to invite my mom to have a more inclusive reading of the scriptures and image of God, and also invite my uncle and my grandparents to have a more inclusive and loving image of God as well? Yes, great question. I don't do that. I don't try to convince people to change their theology on a social justice issue because it puts us in a state of debate or like combativeness. One of us is going to win. One of us is going to lose. So you can talk about like inviting people, which is better language. But I tend to sidestep that whole thing and say, okay, you think my approach is wrong. And I respect that. I think my experience has shown me that the way you practice your belief deeply hurts people and divides families. I mean, case in point. So can we talk about instead of how right or wrong this is, what's the gospel response to people? Right, And so I would probably look at someone who is theologically conservative, like Preston Sprinkle, who would agree with the hermeneutic, the way of interpreting Scripture, but makes an argument for how that belief is lived out relationally and see if he can restore relationship and just push the theology to the side completely. And I, 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 that comes down to like a really core belief I have is that you can't lead people where they don't want to go. You can't convince, coerce, cajole. You, there's nothing you can do. Humans are more stubborn than mules. You cannot convince people to change their mind often. So I'd rather talk about, do you care about your brother? Of course I care about my brother. Like, then is the state of the relationship something you're satisfied with no well what what could be better 
and like ask a lot of questions. And she might say, well, everything would be fine if he just realized being gay is a sin. And say, okay, do you think he'll realize that if every Christian in his life won't be involved in his life, if they separate him? What choice does he have then? Um, which is like, it's a little bit of a guilt move, but I'll take it. Um, and just encourage like the important thing is continuing in relationship. That's not the same as like endorsing the behavior or whatever, but like the, the, the place people have to get to on this topic, which I don't call an issue. It's not an issue. This is a, this is a, a matter of liberty and life for people who are gay or who are lesbians, right? So I don't just call it an issue. But people who think it's a sin for people to marry who have the same biological gender have to realize the toothpaste is not going back in the tube. Uh, This is not a culture war that gets won. So they have to learn how to love your neighbor today in a society where this is accepted and increasingly normalized. At the same time, those of us who are allies or people who are LGB have to understand that this is a huge north of 30% block of the country, and this will be a significant position in American culture for at least 25 years. So I think mutual shunning won't work, especially for Christians, especially for Christians. So I try to tell the stories of people who are hurt by the way beliefs are lived out and let people work through their own theology and their own understanding. And it takes time. And there's grief and there's feeling of betrayal all around. There would be some miracle if everybody agreed to go to counseling together. Uh, But that would help. But the ultimate test is, like, how many years, months, minutes, seconds do you think each of you have left on the earth? That's a finite resource. The longer you kick the can down the road, the more likely it is that one of you dies and the relationship is just broken and never gets reconciled. So why put it off? And then I guess maybe one other thing in the hermeneutic. Jesus was always patient with sinners and harsh with the righteous. It's really clear in the Gospels. Who got like the sarcastic cutting Jesus? The people who knew the law. Who got the patient go and sin no more? The common people. The people who the Pharisees called sinners. Uh, So the most Christ-like thing you can do is be patient and love. Hi, my name is Sean. Hey, Sean. Uh, My question is about uh, what you've talked about before, uh, Christian atheism. Yes. So I'm in an odd position because I, uh, after about two years of deconstruction, am basically deconstructed out of out of faith mm-hmm. almost entirely mm-hmm. but because of 
you and the liturgists, I'm uh, remaining contemplative, remaining uh, able to consider faith. I'm actually here with my wonderful pastor. Right. Um, and, uh, but it's an odd place to be. Um, I have wonderful friends who are affirming of me and, and where I'm at, wherever that is. But I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit more about that topic of uh, Christian atheism and being kind of in both places at once. Yes, absolutely. By the way, if you're not aware, Christian atheism is a thing. What's a Christian atheist? A pers- an atheist is a person who lacks any belief or lacks belief in any god or gods. That's an atheist. What's a Christian? A person who follows Christ. So what's a Christian atheist? A person who lacks any belief, lacks belief in any god or gods, who follows the teachings of Jesus. You could fit all of them in a small convention center, but they exist. And uh, there was like a time in my life where I probably would have called myself a Christian atheist. Um, And then I got to the whole split brain thing, saw that research, and I realized that it's not that I was an atheist who followed the teachings of Jesus, it's that I was a Baptist for 30 years and an atheist for two and a half, three years, and I could still see the world with both of those perspectives, and I kept trying to pick one. And if a guy who had his corpus callosum severed could say both yes and no to do you believe in God, maybe I should just stop trying to wrestle this out. And I kind of got an image. If you would imagine like the Baptist faith as a city. I live there like a long time. And then I got on a plane and I took off and I was like, I'm not a Baptist anymore. I'm leaving that town. But I got to land somewhere. So I went from the East Coast to the West Coast and landed in Atheistville. And I did the geography on purpose. And and I landed in Atheistville, and I'm like, I'm an atheist now. And then that stopped working for me, so I took off again. And like with that view, what are we always looking for? Somewhere to land. I need a label that lets me know who my tribe is. I just stopped doing that. I don't like, I'm to the point now that the theist atheism Labels and language is completely uninteresting to me. I, I, just, I just don't care. I don't care. That's not to say I don't care about people's experiences with those labels. I mean, in terms of applying to my life, I don't think about it at all. I know that I'm a skeptical person. I tend to analyze things closely. I tend to like to have evidence for claims, but I am also a person that sees a miraculous beauty everywhere that I ascribe to God. And when I point my like skeptical beam at that, it kind of evaporates. So I don't point my skeptical beam at it. Um, and I just enjoy the embodiment and the gift of a life I didn't create my own. So 
I would say maybe stop trying to land the plane. And if the practice of Christian faith brings you some form of comfort and peace, then just practice it. And even if you're like, I'm not sure if I believe that, that's fine. The Gospels are full of people saying, I'm not sure if I believe this. Or believing it completely incorrectly. Jesus, after you overthrow Caesar, I get to sit at your right hand, right? Now, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So yes or no on the right hand seats. You know what I mean? Like, that's the Gospels. And if it fills you with joy, enjoy it. And that includes questions and doubts and taking things apart. I think doubt and deconstruction are only dangerous when coupled with fear and anger. Today, I've said it before, today doubt is like a good friend of mine. Doubt's a guy that comes over to my house with a beer and plays devil's advocate and helps me figure out what like is right and wrong and what I believe. And I don't fear that process at all because my life is not a 10 million piece jigsaw puzzle that I've got to get all put together before my hourglass runs out. Life's not a Rubik's Cube where I'm trying to get like green and blue and red. Life's a journey we take. And God's our companion on that journey. And God's the path through the journey itself. And some people call that God. Some people call that the cosmos. Um, I call it God. I interpret it through Christ because that's how the world opens up for me. And if you would use a term like Christian atheist, you probably have some of that longing too. So I would just say like unselfconsciously lean into it. And if you're at an Ask Science Mike live event with your pastor, you're probably in a community that's okay with that. So usually the problem is if you're someone who doesn't like cleanly fit the theist-atheist divide, if you're a person who can say a term like Christian atheist or non-theist or mystic, a lot of churches go, whoa, 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 you're a heretic, get out of here. Or they execute church discipline or whatever. And I would not hang around in a place like that because it will not help you accept this invitation into living that Christ offers us. But you're already there, so I'd just be like a really comfortable, open Christian atheist for as long as you need those terms. And that's the most biblical thing you can do. Because we start with a God in a garden who walks with us and talks with us, and then that worked so well that we ate from the tree of knowledge and got kicked out. So then we saw God in this bush that burned with fire and wasn't consumed, who spouted existentialist poetry. I am that I am. I will be that which I will be, right? And as the biblical narrative unfolds, you keep seeing all these new images of God that fit the dominant worldview and context and theology and philosophy of the day. And that keeps going through the entire Biblical art, art, you know, a God that is in an ark and then in a tabernacle and then in a temple whose greatness emanates over all the earth. An infinite mystery, by the way, 
Like that God, the late prophet's God, was really hard to understand, distant and mystical. The Holy of Holies was painted with scenes of the night sky and mystery and beauty to show God's ultimate mystery. And uh, we needed God to have a face again, so we got Jesus. And that worked so well, we crucified him. And then a mysterious God returned, only now we were the temple through the Holy Spirit. And then we called this whole thing a trinity. A little after we assembled the library of books we call the Bible today. And if you, if you say, like, God is, I'm, I'm a Bushist. I only believe in the great I am and the burning bush. And that God in the temple, that's heresy. Then you've missed the ark of the Bible. No, 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 no. I, I believe Jesus was God, but all that Old Testament stuff, that was just prophecy that points to Jesus as the only God. You just missed the Bible. So I think some people today, their burning bush, their pillar of cloud, their son of God is the cosmos. But it's the same invitation. So yes, take whatever metaphor you need to know, follow, and serve God, to live a life of love and peace and beauty. But don't hold it too closely, because if you do, it will become an idol, and you will miss the next thing that God shows you to and God invites you to. And I don't want my understanding of God, my hermeneutic of the Bible, any of those things to become an idol I put in front of God's true greatness. So you're welcome here. And uh, hooray for the Christian atheists. Okay, I wrote this down this morning. Um, Is the Gaia hypothesis of planet Earth scientifically provable? Or is it just a metaphor uh, for like perceiving the world? And just because it's fun, given your understanding of consciousness, would it be fitting to label the Earth as conscious? That's a great question. Much more succinct than I expected. Congratulations. Shouldn't have sat down. Uh, Anything is scientifically provable if you stretch the terms far enough. (laughs) So I'm usually careful to define what I mean by terms when I talk about consciousness. That's why I say consciousness, as I'm talking right now, is a set of feedback loops that build a model of reality so something can operate within it. Now we know, because consciousness, everybody just says consciousness like we all mean the same thing. We don't. Same thing happens with the word God. You ask any three people what God is, you'll get six answers, right? So the Gaia hypothesis is the idea that the earth itself is a super organism. Is that scientifically provable? Probably not as defined in that way. Functionally, the earth is an interdependent global ecology. And in the same way that if you eat a bad taco, 
Even your follicles will hurt, even though they don't digest food. Uh, if you, if bad things happen anywhere in the earth to ecosystems, it affects the entire global ecology. Does the earth itself on a global scale build a model of reality that it responds to? Uh, I've seen some theoricians say yes, based on certain interpretations of consciousness, but that's not something I think you could answer definitively, scientifically, one way or another. This is that rare moment when I have like a really accurate, researched answer to a question that still feels deeply unsatisfying. I'm trying to like, the whole time rattling off facts, I was like, get to something poetic and beautiful, get to something poetic and beautiful. <laughs> and I don't think, uh, I can, well, I think we should care for the earth as if the Gaia theory is correct. Uh, you don't have to save the earth. The earth's going to be fine. It's a planet. If we launch every thermonuclear weapon humanity has ever built, the planet won't care. It will still be here for billions of years. People won't be, but the earth will be fine. I've often thought our, our, our environmental campaign should not be save the whales or save the earth or save the rainforest. The poster should say, save the humans. Uh, because we are on an incredible run right now. We're driving the sixth mass extinction event in Earth history. Go humans. We're making a record here. Uh, making history. The sixth mass extinction event. And we understand that the types of organisms that don't make it through mass extinction events are large-bodied animals. So we could wipe out a bunch of life, and cockroaches are like, sweet. It's like a buffet. Uh, they're go- you know, cockroaches are going to be fine. Bacteria are going to be fine. All kinds of life, no matter what we do, are going to be fine. We'll just run out of people. Um, and so that, that underlying ethos of how you treat Gaia, Gaia treats you, that is scientifically verifiable. And right now, man, we are, we are rough tenants. Just really, like you couldn't, I guess you could literally intentionally be worse in our behavior. Like you could, I don't know, we could just literally like launch nukes as fast as we can build them or burn all the forests at the same time. But short of that intentional malevolence, human activity couldn't be worse for the planet than it is right now which is ultimately bad for us. I don't want to live in a dome on Mars because it's the only place in the solar system available to me. I'd love to go to Mars just for cool points, like to visit, but I don't want to have to abandon this planet, which is not an implausible thing that a thousand years from now that's something we're really talking about. So there's one way to look at that. If Gaia is the language that gets you to take care of the earth, talk about Gaia. If earth care and the stewardship offered by God in Genesis, I don't care what metaphor you use, just stop spewing industrial pollutants at every turn because we're, we're just going to run out of resources and clean water and clean air. I mean, Matt, you think, like, you think 2016's been a rough election? Wait until there's not enough fresh water for everybody.
people, human beings, without water and food are the most dangerous animal on the planet. They're terrifying. And that I this is one thing where I get really confused. Like the the political tension over earth care is it's really not smart projected out even one generation and really, really dangerous projected out too. Like people are alive today who will potentially suffer unimaginably because they're like, well, I need a big car. And I, I just, I don't know. I had an idea for a video where like we have people explain to their not yet born great grandchildren like we show them pictures of what the earth will could potentially be like and just like explain to your great grandchild like why the hamburger was that important every day and like you know what you know what i mean it's just it's sorry i'm really showing a lot of bias here but this is not outrageous science and that's the thing so there's some people could say well maybe maybe like the some of the further end models are wrong and maybe all we'll have to do is abandon some coastal cities and uh, like if if it, even if it's a five percent chance of global catastrophe, that seems enough to me to like make different choices. But I'm a weird guy, uh, so maybe we should all just get more weird. Hi, my name is Nate. Hey, Nate. And um, several questions I wanted to ask you, but it's come down to this one right, right now. I used to be a young Earth. A little Earth creationist, <laughs> and um, at the at the point now where you know it's only in the last year really um, wrestling with the evolution via natural selection process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and being okay with it, even within my con- view of God and whatnot. However, I still I mean I've got people in my life who are on one side or the other, and uh, my question is: Is there any real Science that actually is used to discuss both sides, or is it mostly simply just the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says? Or there is there actually people having honest scientific discussions on both sides? Okay, great question. The scientific consensus is easily and comfortably in ancient universe and evolution via natural selection. Let's clarify something, though. Evolution does not say where life came from. Darwin's theory of evolution says nothing about how life appeared on Earth. Evolution says how once life appeared on Earth, there got to be so many varieties of it. Okay? So the the study of how life appeared in the first time is called first place is called abiogenesis, pretty much a mystery. There's six or seven really good hypotheses out there, hypotheses out there, and nobody knows, has any way to measure which one's better, and it could be none of those six are right. So there's a lot of room for healthy debate, I think even for creationists to be involved if they come up with good theories on how abiogenesis happened. Evolution we understand evolution better than we understand gravity. Uh, and I've noticed like young earth creationists aren't like, you know what? The law of gravity is bunk. I'm going to jump off a church. 
You know what I mean? They just accept it, even though we don't really understand it, because we observe the effects. Same is true of evolution. Um, so there's not like a lot. Of, now, there are scientists with real PhDs from real institutions working for evangelical think tanks who work backwards from the text to provide a scientific justification, but that's not the scientific method. The scientific method is to start with the data, come up with a model that could explain the data, and then make predictions for data you don't have, and then run a test to see if your model makes the right prediction. Starting with the text is incompatible with science. Um, that doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. It just means it's inherently unscientific. Now, that said, that's not a debate I have. You could not get me to debate someone about young earth creationism. I don't care if you're a young earth creationist. It's not even that like I think... Like, if I had the chance, I would convince you. It is so low on my priority things and how we relate to God. If, belie- if, if somehow believing in six literal days and a garden planted by hand by God is what makes you feel known and loved by God, then I would never in a second try to take it away from you. Because I would be saying that only my view of the burning bush is correct. And your temple is wrong, right? So what I want to get is past a debate about origin stories and to the point where we talk about the outcome of creation. Because what both evolutionary Christians, evolutionary creationists, and theistic evolutionists, and young earth and old earth creationists all believe is Genesis reveals a God who loves the creation and that's different from every other story told in that era. It's a waste of breath to fight over how many days it took to make the earth. Because we could be spending all those breaths remaking the earth in God's image today. And that's the work that interests me. Um, so I go, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff with Biologos. I love Biologos. They're way more theologically conservative than I am, but they care about the work of having conservative, theologically grounded discussions about creation for people who are interested. And I think that's a great thing, and that's why I participate. But that doesn't help us love our neighbor. So who am I with? I am with young earth creationists and evolutionists who love their neighbor. And if someone is a, an evolutionist and not into loving their neighbor, I'd rather go hang out with a young earth creation person. You know? Yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. Hi, Mike. I'm Lydia. Hey, Lydia. Uh, my question kind of goes back to that guy's question about, about the environment, but like on a more personal level. Okay. So my home culture is like middle, upper class white people. Yep. And um, my adopted culture now. And it's been really cool to see a lot of like really conservative people change their opinions on race because it's really cool to bring people in their lives and, and tell them stories and all that. But I'm having a way harder time with the environment. And it's not like I'm sitting there 
trying to convince them, but it's like you literally talk about how your New Year's resolution is to use no plastic bags at the grocery store, mm -hmm. and they start telling you that the earth is okay and you should chill out. So just the way people like negate what is going on about that is hard. And so how would you recommend like having a dialogue about that when it seems like, I don't know, they just are really close to it? So a friend of mine, Catherine Hayhoe, is an environmental scientist and climate change specialist. Like the kind that meets with presidents, like that legit. And she did a fascinating study that showed um, antipathy towards earth care and climate change is not a religious thing. That religiosity does not predict for climate change denial or like, you know, I'm not taking plastic bags. Now that's 100% a political ideology. And we are not exactly prepared in 2017 to have good substantive discussions across lines of political division. I think we're less able to do that than we were 10 years ago. We're less able to do that than we were able to nine months ago. Uh, that whole line of dialogue is broken down. So maybe we should start with a request for mutual respect. I tell you what. I made a New Year's resolution that I'm not going to use plastic bags because I care about the earth that we live in. But can we? I'm not trying to convince you to do that. So we just agree, like, I can do that because it matters to me. If you choose not to, I won't say that. Can we, like, just restore basic civility first? Then after that, I don't, the plastic bag thing to me, like, plastic's easy. You can Google image search a picture of the plastic float in the Pacific, the size of Texas, you know? <laughs> Plastics is, is, is bad. Um, so there's, there's a pretty small, not Texas-sized, small compared to Texas, but large in the middle of a vortex in the Pacific of, like, visible plastic, but it rubs against itself and breaks down basically into little invisible plastic beads. But in, in an area larger than Texas now, you can just take a boat through and scoop out the water and then count the amount of plastic in it. And it's so thick that a lot of uh, wavelengths of light can't get through the surface and the plankton's dying off. And since the plankton is the foundation of the ecosystem, all everything else is starting to die off too. And you have these dead zones in the ocean. I think we like everyone can agree dead zones in the ocean aren't desirable especially Texas-sized dead zones. Surely we can agree that's like not good for the earth. And then on other things, um, economics. I replaced all my lights at home with LED lights. And uh, in seven months, all the bulbs paid for themselves. And they last 15 years. So not only do I not have to buy new lights, my power bill went down. That's not an environmental discussion. It's economic. So I tend to focus on easy wins. Another thing right now, I have this discussion about solar. In a lot of parts of the country, solar is cheaper than fossil fuels now without subsidies. So we don't have to have a discussion 
in those situations. It's just like, would you like to save money? Put solar panels on your roof. Done. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care if you hate the earth. Everyone likes more money. Everybody. It's universal. That's not true. Anarcho-capitalists don't like more money. But everybody else uh, likes more money. So I, I tend to think in easy wins. I tend to think in less controversial areas. But mostly I think, like, how do I establish my life in a way that people are comfortable discussing with me things they disagree with? And that comes a lot more than how you discuss topics you disagree with and a lot more about how you live life together every day. And I tried every opportunity to reinforce the idea in others that I love, respect, and appreciate them. And that covers all kind of stuff. I mean, like I'm like a super, these days, like really left-leaning person. I haven't always been, that's new. But my family is all rural, like far-right people. And we laugh like crazy at Thanksgiving because no matter what else, they're, they're my family. I mean, they're the people that were there the day I was born, and they're the people who will be there the day I get lowered into the ground. And that's just an amazing perspective builder. And I think, I think this, this election seems different. I think this is the one where families are just like, you know what, I've got nothing to do with you and you have nothing to do with me. And I can understand how we get there. I think that's ultimately bad for the issues both sides care about. I think it, I think it, it hurts everybody involved. So... I affirm the basic human dignity of evangelical Christians and Trump voters and climate people who disagree with me on climate change or environmental issues. And I understand that, like me, they are living a worldview they didn't create that was handed to them. I think that's important to recognize. None of us chose where we were born. None of us chose what we were taught as children. None of us chose the encounters that we have each day. Those were all things that were handed to us. We not, not say we don't have any involvement. We choose how we respond to events. As we get more agency, we choose where to direct our life. But ultimately, we're all just trying to make it to payday, right? If we maintain relationships of respect and love, it actually enables us to talk about those issues that are important enough to talk about because they impact other people. You know what I mean? So at some point, if this is true about CO2, your 10-cylinder engine actually does affect the rest of us. But you'll never have that discussion with somebody whose humanity you don't recognize. Hey, Mike. My name's Campbell. Hey, Campbell. In all the evangelical circles that I uh, spent time in growing up, you were called a baby murderer if you used the word abortion and ambiguity in the same sentence. Yeah, um, me and too. As I grew up, I started to think of being pro-life as a more all-inclusive thing. So it included uh, Jesus' nonviolent ethic, um, 
capital punishment, all of those things. Um, but the more that I read feminist thinkers, uh, I start to care more about women's rights and mm-hmm. uh, bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering, how might one reconcile women's autonomy, a nonviolent ethic, um, with the quote-unquote issue of abortion? A nice, easy one. Thank you. Um, well, if I figure that out, I'll let you know. Because I don't know. I, do, I don't know. The, I, I drive everyone crazy on this issue. When they, uh, we did a whole podcast, pro, Pro-Life, Pro-Choice, on the Liturgist podcast, which people who are open to civil discussion really enjoyed, but people who were firmly in either camp hated because we didn't come like to a conclusion <laughs> because we haven't. Uh, when I grew up, I was the guy that stood on the side of the road with the abortion kills children poster. That was just me. When I considered the issue as an atheist, it's not that I went all the way pro-choice or women's autonomy because I always thought, well, like, the, there's a child that didn't choose to exist. So to me, like, the, the, compl- the complication to me is at what point do those cells deserve autonomy and legal protection themselves? And that is probably at some point where they're housed in another person. And I tried to look at like the, the biology around uh, infant and child development. Um, most embryos are non-viable. So if a soul... If a soul is a thing and souls are given at conception, most people, most souls don't get to be born. The majority of souls ever created don't make it past a couple of weeks, maybe six. So then what does that tell me? I remember I read one piece by a scientist, an atheist, who said, If God exists, he's the world's leading abortion provider. And I was like, oh, man, that's rough. Um, So when I hit that kind of ambiguity, I punt, to use a football term, and I go to pragmatism. I think we all agree that if a woman is in a situation where she has to abort a fetus, it would have been better if she didn't have to abort the fetus. And even the woman would prefer that. So by scientific measurements, what causes less fetuses to be aborted? Easy access to birth control, universal sex education, educational and economic empowerment for women, and legal abortions. Those four things have been demonstrated to cause less abortions to occur. And so as a pragmatist, I go, well, what's the shared value of people who are for women's autonomy and people who want to protect the rights of the unborn as early as conception? Both of those groups would like to see less abortions so let's just create policies that make less abortions. 
And so this is another topic where, like, I don't understand the fight in the political realm. So we already know what works. Let's just do that. And so, like, on the right, some people say, and I don't mean the political right. I mean the religious right. Those are distinct things, okay? Um, They would say, you know, we don't want to encourage people to have um, sex because that's immoral. And I would just say, so which is worse, people having sex or abortions? If they're not equal, if you think an abortion is worse than people having sex, then let's just provide birth control everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, so if we knew that... I'm going to go ridiculous. But let's say we figured out in a study that if people wash their hands with dial soap, the murder rate went down. Would would anyone be against like using government money to put dial soap accessibly everywhere? No. Why? Because we don't like to see people get murdered. Uh, But let's put it more questionable. If we figured out that if we allowed people to speed 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, traffic fatalities were reduced. Now, if we, if we, if we, if we didn't enforce, if they, we, we go 11, 15, they go back up. But if we lower the speed limit five miles an hour, then let people speed 11 up, fatalities go down. Speeding's a moral transgression, but it's not as bad as people dying. So we would probably just do that. But somehow on this issue, everybody gets so passionate, we don't look at what works. So I think if you're pro-life or you're for women's autonomy, you should support and tell your policymakers, I want easy access to affordable birth control. I want universal sex education. I want economic and educational empowerment for women. And the one we would disagree on is whether abortion is safe and legal. Now, again, what I'm saying, the data seems to indicate that when abortions are safe and legal, you have fewer of them. I don't understand that, how that plays out, but across cultures all over the globe, safe, legal abortions, there's fewer. I think that might be because if you have a society that values autonomy, those other three things are easier to get. And so what I've challenged my friends on the right to do is take the lead on those three, and maybe we don't even have to worry about number four. Maybe that it becomes a non-issue. Is, is you go into certain parts of, of Europe, and like teenage abortion is just not a thing they think about. That is such a statistical rarity. And even elective abortions... Are, are much lower in those countries than they are in the United States. So let's aim for that. So, like, I can't resolve, and believe me, I've tried, that thorny mess of women's autonomy and the right of an unborn child. But it almost, you almost don't have to because we already know how to fix it either way. Hi, um, my name's Caleb. Hi, Caleb. And um, my question is, people with disabilities um, often and sometimes have abilities that regular people don't have. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Okay. Oh, great question. First of all, Tuesday, uh, that's tomorrow, 
And for those of you in internet land, last Tuesday, oh, I hate that temporal mix, um, we're releasing a podcast or did release a podcast on ableism, which is the way many people tend to respond to folks with disability with uh, pity or indifference. And so we've talked about ways to deal with that. Now, in terms of why people with disabilities often have other abilities we would find exceptional, I think has to do with the phenomenon known as compensation. So many people don't realize that I'm severely learning disabled. I don't have any ability to tell my right from my left. And uh, I have trouble with the orders of letters, um, not when reading, but when writing. And uh, I have almost no short-term memory. I have no understanding of chronological time, how long ago things happened or in what order. And I have a hard time understanding things I hear versus things I see. Um, and no one knew I had a learning disability until I was a junior in high school. And I got tested by a learning specialist who said my compensation strategies were so good, it hid the disorder. Um, but I still didn't do great in school. And so she gave me like five tips on learning styles. And I went from like being a, a CD student to straight A's, and it, it didn't even take effort. It literally just took different ways of approaching things with my brain. So because I have no short-term memory, I can commit things to long-term memory faster than anyone else I know. So when I read a book, when I close it, I pretty much remember everything in the book forever. That's how you become a science mic. You read eight books a month, and you remember all of them, right? And so you can imagine that if someone doesn't have the ability to see, they devote a lot more attention to what they hear. And we found that blind people use their visual cortex, which has a ton of neurons, to analyze what they hear. And in fact, some people who are blind use a primitive version of, a, of echolocation, like bats or dolphins, to form an image of what's around them. Now some, I've seen a couple people who are blind, who can literally click with their tongue and not run into anything. Like they can go through a maze without a cane, right? Um, but other people who haven't learned to do that, at least are so in tune with the differences and delays coming between the, their two ears that they create a map of their surroundings that's interpreted by their visual cortex. And that's because human brains are amazing. And that's why people with different abilities or disabled people have so much to teach us because often they see the world in fundamentally different ways. And a fundamentally different perspective is one of the most valuable things you can get. I've learned in my life that my life is richer when I talk to and learn from people whose life experiences are the most different from my own. So for a long time, that was people with different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, or economic backgrounds. And it's in the last couple of years that also means 
people with different development and ability backgrounds because they offer me a gift that I could never, through any amount of effort, find myself, and that's seeing the world from a different perspective or hearing the world from a different perspective. And that's all about compensation and neuroplasticity. You've done it. You made it through an episode of Ask Science Mike Live. Congratulations. We will have t-shirts at the exit. No, I'm just kidding. There are no t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. You have been uh, lovely to be with. Uh, I want to thank Greg Nordine for his work editing the show. Andrew Galucky for all the work he does in pre-production. My patrons on Patreon for making the show financially possible. And all you in internet land, I hope to see you in person soon. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. 